0: John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. As we're going through this series according to John, grace exemplified, eschatology, and deity clarified. Today we get to see the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. When I was reading some of the commentaries, it was a noteworthy thing that John chapter 4 has a ton of very encouraging and good information and we get to journey through part of it today. But I want to back up a little bit and give you a little bit of last week's text because it relates to today. If you'll remember, we did go through the first part of John chapter 3. We did deal with John 3:16, very popular passage. We dealt with, you know, the concept that only believing is not okay. Believing must include illustrating that belief. In other words, you can't just say I'm a, I'm a Christian or a follower of Christ. You have to show it. You have to live for Him. And that's what believing entails. In fact, it goes on to talk about baptism quite a bit, and it continues uh, into our text today, but In our text last week, John chapter 3, verse 22, you'll see it come up behind me, we'll read it. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. I also want to show you today's first two verses, John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, I'm sorry, when, yeah, when Jesus heard that Learned that the Pharisees had, learned, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Just want to give you that up front. It's an, a clarification and an apparent contradiction. In fact, if you look at another passage from last week, look at John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Now, John also was baptizing at Aianon near Salim because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. So we got two verses that appear to say that Jesus is baptizing. Well, they do say that. And then you have in our verse today, in this little parenthetical note, Jesus didn't baptize. It's interesting. And the first verse says he was, but then the second verse clarifies, this just means that he was having people baptize. Very smart of Jesus to do that, that he didn't actually baptize people physically. Can you imagine the controversy that would come up, like Paul mentioned? Well, who baptized you, Paul? Well, who baptized you, Peter? Jesus. Mine's better. I mean, that's the way people would act, you know? I mean, I I have people. I still may do it. I've got a person right now, a very close friend of mine, who wants to go, wants me to go to the Jordan River to baptize him. There was a, a man in the Lacey Church that was very much caught up in it's it's better water to be baptized in the Jordan, because that's where Jesus was baptized. There's actually people that do this. There's a particular author that wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, and actually in that book there's a prediction of the end of the world that didn't happen when he predicted it. But Hal Lindsey baptizes people in the Jordan River. In fact, this individual in the Lacey church had been baptized in the Jordan River five different times by Hal Lindsey. And I'm not sure it ever took. I'm just saying, I don't know. So Jesus didn't actually physically baptize people. Our scripture clarifies when it says that he baptized, he was actually having them baptized. Now it makes sense. Good to know. But it's important to pay attention to what this says. When he found out, when Jesus learned that people were talking about him gaining more disciples than John, which John had a bunch, look at Jesus' response. We pick up with verse 3. He left Judea. And departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And there's a whole lot of information in this text, this particular part. So first of all, he leaves Judea as a response to learning that a whole bunch of people are getting worked up. This guy has a bigger following than John. Remember, John said, he's the one I'm pointing you to in the first place. But Jesus' response was that since the Pharisees are learning this, these are all the teachers of the Jews, they're learning this, he apparently doesn't want to have a premature... Thing happened. We don't want to get him worked up too much, so he leaves the area. We know he was in Jerusalem. He goes to the Judean countryside. We don't know specifically. We try to find those places. You can't really find them, at least not conclusively, and know for sure. But he was somewhere around Jerusalem. And in this text, we can see uh, even more, and I want to get to that in just a minute. But notice it says he came to a town of Samaria called Sikar. Now, I want to show you a map. You'll see it come up behind me. This is the general area in the first century, and I don't know if you can actually read anything from where you are, but you can kind of see the area. So I want to show you Jerusalem, where it sits down in Judea. So he's somewhere around there, and then we know that he goes up to... Uh, He's heading to Galilee, but he goes to Sikkar. Now, notice you'll see the little dot that just came up behind me. It's going to go up to Sikkar. And it's interesting when you look at this, um, there is a road that goes that way. And it appears by looking at the topographical uh, designs on the map that it's kind of um, on, a, on a ridge line. That's what it looks like. And I'm no expert, but that's kind of cool. It'd be a cool journey to go uh, across a ridge line like that to get there. <clears throat> let's go back to the text. I want you to see what's happening. Um, so notice that he stops in this town, Sikhar, and we really don't know exactly where it is. That's why there was a question mark on the map, but we, we think it was right about there. It's a special place because there's this, it's near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. This is important to bring this into play in the discussion. All of these things. So Samaria, one of those things about Samaria is Jews really hated Samaritans. And there's a lot to that. If you look up the history, you'll discover what happened is there was a remnant of the Jews left there in a particular time in history, somewhere around 900 AD. And they began to intermarry with non-believers, so they, they still clinged to uh, their Hebrew heritage, and they believed a lot of the same things, but their faith had become paganized. They had brought into the teachings of God very worldly and even pagan things. That's why you see in the Old Testament, don't marry outside your faith. It has nothing to do with the particular Geographic locations, uh, you know, these these kinds of people don't marry with them. No, it's don't marry someone outside your faith. Don't do that. I was in a church. I, I didn't realize it was going to happen, but God had me in a church I was filling in, and that's where I discovered I was supposed to preach. But while I'm in this church, I'm teaching a Bible study, and there was a man that had been recently baptized, and... He and his wife were, got very involved while I was there with the youth group. They did wonderful things. But while I was teaching the biblical teaching about don't marry outside your faith, she raised her hand. And she said, well, what do you say about this? I mean, I don't remember how long it was. I think it was you know probably 10, 15, maybe even 20 years that they had been married, and she kept bringing him to church. And finally, he was baptized into Christ. And she said, so... Her argument was, if I hadn't married him, he would not have come to know Jesus. And it seemed like a good argument until I asked him, what would you have done if she said to you before she would agree to marry you, I cannot marry someone who is not committed to Jesus? He said, I would have seriously thought about being committed to Jesus right then and there. And I said, okay, so in other words, you could have had however many years it was, 10, 15, or 20 years of ministering to youth or whoever that you've lost. So it's it's a foolish argument to say you should marry outside your faith. No, the New Testament teaching is don't be unequally yoked. You don't want to have those battles. You don't want to raise kids in a home where they don't know which direction they should go. Their souls are in jeopardy. Marry someone inside your faith. And this is a teaching that God tried to instill in his people all along. But the Samaritans? Mm-mm. In fact, you'll, you, you notice what happened. It was um, in, you'll see in the Old Testament, in the writings of Ezra, you see the, the Old Testament book of Ezra and of Nehemiah, where they're rebuilding the temple, we are rebuilding Jerusalem and then rebuilding the temple. And this is a timeline in which uh, the Samaritans, um, the, distinct, the distinction between them and the Jews became even greater. And another thing happened. And, and when you read about Manasseh, uh, he built a temple for the Samaritans. So that's directly in violation of the Old Testament stuff. You can't, it's just one temple. And ultimately, this temple is actually designed to lead us to Jesus. And You don't need it anymore once Jesus comes. That it was, that's why it was destroyed in 70 AD. There is no more, right now, there is no way anybody can follow the Old Testament law. Where is the Holy of Holies that the high priest goes into every year, once a year, to make a sacrifice for the people of God? Where is it? It does not exist. So, Judaism, as it was designed to lead people to Jesus, is not needed anymore. Don't let somebody tell you that somehow... The Jewish people have a back door into heaven because they're God's people. There's a lot of people that teach this. There are great preachers that go off into that weirdness. And the reason why I say it's weirdness is because Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, we'll get to it later, not today, but as we journey through, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You, you don't get a back door into heaven. You don't, you don't get to say, Well, I'm not, I'm not I'm going to say that I believe in God, Jesus, in the Bible. I'm not going to say that because, you know, I want to still have a way in. No, you have to live for Him if you want to arrive at heaven. Amen. There's no back door. There's, the Jewish people don't get a back door. The Satanists don't get a back door. The people who try to be indifferent don't get a back door. And the lukewarm Christians don't get a back door. You have to live for Him. Read your Bibles. Okay. The Samaritans had kind of a, they had a belief in God, they had a belief, they believed, just, I don't know if you know this, they only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired. That definitely makes them different than the Jews. So Jesus has to pass through an area, and, and I got to tell you, it's very strange all the rules that the Pharisees had imposed on the Jewish people were very obnoxious and so out there. I told you about some of these last week, and they had their own little ways around their own laws that they couldn't follow. But if you if you don't know this, you should look it up. You weren't even supposed to um, if you you weren't supposed to publicly talk with a woman. The, the, the Pharisees had, made, had pushed women down so far. And a lot of people, they read the Bible and they go, well, you see, women were looked down upon quite a bit. No, the Pharisees made up stuff to push them down. In fact, even if you talk to your wife or your daughter in public, you had to go do a ceremonial cleansing after that. You definitely were not supposed to communicate with a Samaritan. If you communicated with a Samaritan, go get your cleansing now. You're defiled So it's an interesting thing that unfolds in our story today, but don't pass over this part about it being right at this field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. That's important to know. Because that story is in the first five books. The part that the Samaritans and the Jews both believe is inspired. Jacob's well was there. So they know the story about the well. They know the story about Joseph. That Keep that parked in your mind. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, humanity of Jesus, he's exhausted. If it really is on a ridge like it looks on a topographical map, if you've done ridge lines, they are not straight. They're scary and it's stressful. If you, when you, It doesn't matter what kind of stress that you're exposed to. It's exhausting to be stressed. And if you're walking on a ridgeline, that's sketchy. I mean, you fall this way and you die. You fall this way and you die. That's, that's stressful. And plus, it's a journey. So he's walking and he's going up and down. Elevation gains are not easy. So he's got these elevation gains. And whether it's a ridgeline that he's walking on or not, he's still going across an area that has different elevations. So he's, he's exhausted. He has not brought water with him. We learn this a little bit in the text. But the humanity of Jesus is very clear. He has to sit and rest. God in the flesh is in a human body, and his human body is saying, I have to sit down. And by the providence and sovereignty of God, it just so happens to be in the perfect place. And it was about the sixth hour. <laughs> I didn't even know. I, I've been through John so many times. And by the way, when we get to chapter 15, I get to share with you something I've shared before, but I'm, I'll peel it back a little bit more and share with you that I was completely ignorant about something after studying it, going through and the, every Greek word and taking it apart through the entire book of John multiple times, and I still missed something. But in John chapter 4 today... You'll notice uh, it says it's the sixth hour. There's a little footnote there. In your Bibles, it probably tells you what that means. It probably says, and mine does, it says, it's about noon. Just so you're aware, this is controversial. I didn't even know until I was going through and looking at all these commentaries again. How is this controversial? It's controversial. But let's go ahead and go with the footnote. We'll assume it's about noon, which in the heat of the day, most of us would also be thinking, okay. I need to sit down and I need to rest. And then we'll go to the next passage and we'll read where this goes. A woman from Samaria, we'll pick up in verse 7, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he's by himself. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, they did have some dealings. I mean, his disciples just went into town to get some groceries. So they're going to buy food from the Samaritans. I'm guessing they do ceremonial cleansings afterwards. I don't know if they follow the Pharisees' rules. But what she's highlighting is these two things. I'm a Samaritan. You're not supposed to talk to me. You're not supposed to drink after me. You're not supposed to talk to a woman, not your wife or your daughter, much less a stranger. And do you not remember, do you not know where we are? Do you not know the story of Jacob and Joseph? Remember Joseph? Remember he was accused of something he didn't do? Here's Jesus alone, outside, alone, no one else is around, by himself, with a woman. Joseph got accused of stuff. Here you are talking to me, we're not supposed to be talking. Mm Mm-mm, this bad stuff can happen. We're not supposed to be talking. But Jesus did not look down on women. Jesus came to show people love and even risking being accused of things, he's talking to her. He's even going to ask to drink after her. That's, just, that's a big no-no. You're supposed to look down on me, she's saying. You're not supposed... You hate me. You hate my people. You don't like women. Those things that people like to say about, you know, God's a chauvinist, well, Jesus definitely exemplified a behavior that is not something a chauvinist would be doing. Not in those days, for sure. I appreciate your prayers, especially if you've been praying for my dealings with particular individuals in the prison, and I'm dealing with a very notorious white supremacist right now who's struggling with a verse I want to share with you because I shared it with him. How can you think this way and call yourself a Christian with a verse like this? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I want to read to you it it in the NIV. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Another way to say it would be consider others better than yourself. How can anybody look down on anyone and call themselves a Christian because this verse clearly paints a picture for us. In fact, it goes on and it tells us in Philippians that Jesus, who could look down on us, the only perfect human that ever walked the planet, all of us mess up. He didn't. He could certainly look down on us, but instead he chose to love us and die for us. And that's the way we're supposed to love others. Don't, don't look at others as better than you. Always look at yourself as less than others. That's not popular. That's not trendy. You walk into a Christian bookstore today or even just a regular bookstore and most of the books you're going to find is all about you being you, you building you, you being a better you. It's all about self-centeredness. And Christianity is all about Jesus-centeredness and others after that, yourself last. And so Jesus is demonstrating this with this Samaritan woman. He is risking things. He's risking being criticized, judged, accused, or whatever. His response to her, John chapter 4, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is not a new concept to this woman. The story that is alluded to here is coming to her mind. It's the story, if you'll remember, of God's people that felt like they would have been better off under Pharaoh dying as slaves than to be out in the desert without any food or water. Here... He is thirsty. He or she is thirsty. They need water. Water represents life. And in the Old Testament, if you remember the Genesis account, water at the beginning. And water was provided to sustain life. Remember? It was provided from the streams and from the dew of the ground because there wasn't rain. Water was very important. In fact, it was when the people were complaining and that we don't have water and we don't have food, it would be better if we die in in Pharaoh's care than out here in the desert. And God provided water, living water. It was earthly living water. But they're very familiar with this because they were given it in a miracle, twice. So when he says living water... Her mind goes there to a supernatural thoughts. So God did a miracle twice. I know that story. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. See what I mean? He didn't have anything with him. He didn't take water with him. So he's very thirsty. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water are you greater than our father Jacob and Jacob remember his name was changed to Israel. She's very familiar with this. When the kingdom was divided, you know, it was Israel that was the northern kingdom and Judah was the southern kingdom. She's very familiar with how great Jacob, also known as Israel, was. And she says this, "Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself." as did his sons and his livestock. This is a special well. How are you going to give give me living water? Jesus said to her, verse 13 and following, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. In other words, this physical water, yeah, it's just earthly. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become thirsty in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking earthly. Maybe a miraculous water that this guy can just produce. He's talking about spiritual water. He's talking about give her eternal life. That's what he's talking about. She's, she's not his disciples didn't get it either, so don't, don't get upset with her. And some of you might be bothered because some commentators like to say, see, see, it is a chauvinistic God, because here he is talking about giving water that's eternal, and yet he's changing it to him. He keeps saying he and him. You notice that? He's talking to her, but he's using pronouns that are him. They're masculine. This is just the Greek language. When, when something is written in the Greek language, the whole sentence follows that gender. That's the way you, you... And if you're talking about a person that could include men and women, but it's generic, it's never neutral, it's always in the masculine, that's the rule of the Greek language. It has nothing to do with him trying to say only men are going to be saved. It's not what he's saying at all, obviously. There is another footnote you'll see here. You'll, when he says he's talking about this eternal life, uh, it, it could be, you see the footnote go up, uh, go up into verse 14 where it says, Thirst, never be thirsty again. It will never be thirsty forever is a literal translation. So let's go to the next verse. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. So she's not figured out what he's talking about. So he goes down a different path. He says, go go get your husband. Verses 17 and 18. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus knew she didn't have a husband. She's, the implication is she's actually living in adultery. That's the implication. It's a strong implication. Your relationships have not gone well, and he brings it right. He puts a spotlight on it. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband, but you've had five. And now you're with someone else inappropriately. He's highlighting her sin. Verse 19 and 20. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet course she does. How would he know this? It's not a magic trick. He doesn't know her, but he knows the details about her life. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's interesting that she's presuming what he's saying. But the Samaritans have been pushed aside. The Samaritans are not allowed to worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans are not allowed in the temple area. The Samaritans are given the impression that you have no hope. You have no hope because you're horrible people. We don't associate with you. You're not Jewish. You have no hope. And Jesus is now giving her hope, even though he confronted her with her sin. And look at verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This connection to the Holy Spirit is an amazing thing. The Samaritans have no reach. They have no access to the spirit, power, and glory of God in the Holy of Holies. But he is telling her that she needs to worship in spirit. And not only in spirit, but also in truth. He had to confront her. She has to get her life right. We'll either read the last two verses here, but there's a lot in these last two verses, and we'll pull it back a little bit. John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is big. Let's peel it back like I said I would. I'm going to talk about the word for Messiah. You'll see a Hebrew word pop up behind me. See that? It's hard to read. So I'm going to label it. It's Hebrew. You'll see that right above it. So if you're trying to take notes and draw this stuff out, just know that's the Hebrew word for Messiah. It's transliterated in the Greek. New Testament's written in Greek, I'll remind you. But the word Messiah is actually a transliteration in Greek of a Hebrew word. Now I want to show you the Greek word for Christ, Christos, and it's Greek. You'll see that label up above it, and both of these words, the Hebrew and the Greek for Christ, the Hebrew for Messiah, mean anointed one. They both mean the same thing. One is a Hebrew transliteration, and one is Greek. They both mean anointed one. That's the one everybody's anticipating. The Savior. Okay. Now I want to show you something from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. That's what this is a reference to. And here's a Hebrew word. You'll see it pop up. Another one looks similar to the other one. And this Hebrew word, you'll see the label Hebrew. This is what it looks like if we simply transliterate it. You know what this is. It's Yahweh, and it equals, but before I give you that, there's another word that, is, that comes from this, and it's hallelujah. You'll see it in other Hebrew words too, that word Yahweh. It's the name of God. It is the, it's, if you were to pick a name of God out of all the names of God in the Old Testament, the name, it means I am. When Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? Tell them, I am sent you. Yahweh sent you. It's a big deal when a Hebrew person, a Jewish person that speaks Hebrew, says, I am. Because that's, that's the name for God. Jesus just told her, I who speak to you am he. And, it, and the way that's heard in her ears, he just said, And she's saying, I know the Messiah or Christ is coming. See, she's starting to suspect, are you, are are you the one, the anointed one? Because she says it in the Hebrew and in the Greek. I know that person's coming. And then he says, I am. That's huge. So anybody who tells you, in fact, there are people, I, I deal with them on a regular basis of other faiths. For instance, the Muslim faith. They will tell you, Jesus, well, he was a, he was a, he was a good prophet, but he's not, he's not. He's just a good prophet. He's not the one. He never, they'll even say he never claimed he was God. <laughs> yes, he did. He, he used God's name for himself, I am. That's a big thing for him to be saying this. And, it's, and we find out later why he's doing this and why he's doing it this way. It is strange. His disciples are going to come back and they're going to learn. He just talked to a woman by himself. And she was a Samaritan. And he told her she could have eternal life. What? And he told her that he's God. Wow. There is a ton in this one little section as we've opened up chapter 4. John's Gospel absolutely focuses on the deity of Christ. And today we got to see highlighted the humanity and the deity all in the same little story. And at the end of a message, I do like to ask the question, so what? Hey, we just learned some stuff. We just got some Greek and some Hebrew and we learn about a story and some other stories that are connected to the story and it all intertwines because God's that way. He He puts these things together so that the puzzle pieces start to work. And in our minds, as the gears are turning, things start to click. And even as we sit in a church on a Sunday morning and all kinds of stuff's going on in our life, and we get these centuries-old stories, we get these very old stories, and maybe we think sometimes, I'm not sure if this relates to me, and it's amazing how it all starts coming together and light bulbs start going off in our head. And we start to think, is God talking to me? That's what I do when I'm preparing this. I sometimes have to hit the pause button as I'm studying. And I have to ask God, are you, are you trying to move me? Maybe, maybe if you haven't done that yet, you should ask those questions. But there's a so what? So what, if, so what about all this? What do we know? What have we learned? How do we put it into practice? Number one, Jesus really was human. The picture is painted quite clearly. He's walking across a jagged terrain. He's, go- he's going to Galilee, but he has to stop and rest and get some water. He has nothing to put a rope down and gather water, so he has to ask a stranger. But God set this whole thing up, not just for her to be able to interact with this man that was there, but so that we could be sucked into this story and see that he has something for us. We see the humanity of Jesus. He had hunger pains. He had thirst. He got tired. He experienced life on earth just like us. So Jesus can relate to whatever it is we go through. He really was human. Two, Jesus really is God. Yeah, okay, so he was in the physical form, but he had to do this. He had to go through the rigors of life, and he had to suffer as a man, not use his God stuff to take the pain away. He had to show us that it requires sacrifice, and sometimes we have to hurt for others. But Jesus really is God. He's capable of giving eternal life. He's the one who said, I am God in the flesh. He really is God. Three, Jesus will get close to the most judged amongst us. Maybe when we talk about the Samaritan woman, you don't relate in the sense that I don't feel like anybody pushed me outside and said I I can never have access to God. Maybe you don't relate that way. Maybe you don't feel like you've been criticized and judged a whole lot, but maybe you do. Maybe you feel like people focus on your past or your connections Maybe you're one that lives like the Samaritans lived. They were constantly told, You have no hope. But Jesus got close to a very judged person. We know that's his nature. He'll do that. And I don't know if you remember when he healed a leper, he didn't just, he could have easily just said, You're healed, but he touched. The leper. Nobody did that. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone that Jesus couldn't love you. Maybe you feel like you've messed up too much and you're too far away. He couldn't get close. Oh, he can. He does. And he will. Number four, there's actually more parts to number four, but Jesus will set you up for success. That's what he does, that's his pattern. We see it throughout the New Testament. Look at these three things underneath that. A, by meeting you where you are. Isn't that interesting? Here's a woman that is full of all kinds of sin. She's got lots of relationship problems. There was a conversation that took place a few years back. It was happening in front of me, and I was listening to a particular lady that I knew her whole story. She'd she'd shared it openly with others, including me, out in groups she would share. She had had multiple failed relationships, but there was a person who was going through a struggle in their first struggling relationship, a younger lady, and she just threw it out there and said, I don't know what to do, gave her story. There was a group of people, and the one that stepped up to put her arm around her and start giving her advice for everybody in the room to hear, was the one who had nothing but complete failed relationships. And she told everybody that. But she's going to advise this other person. This is how you do it. Let me clue you in. Don't listen to somebody that has a life full of broken relationships and they still haven't figured it out. Don't listen to them. Don't let them give you advice. Just like you don't listen to somebody that's going to tell you about how to lead someone to Christ who's never led someone to Christ. That's just not a good idea. If you want to learn how to lead someone to Christ, talk to somebody who's done it a bunch. They kind of know. You want to work on your relationships? Don't talk to somebody who doesn't seem to have it figured out. It it seems like you wouldn't have to say this. So I do like I do. Sometimes I do it in a way that I don't know, maybe not the best way, but... I think, uh, I don't remember if I created a meme and posted it on social media or I just made a statement. If you're struggling with relationship issues, don't ask someone who struggles with relationship issues for advice. And I actually had somebody got got very angry with me because they thought that I knew they were struggling with relationship issues and I, I didn't know. And I didn't know that person had been giving someone else relationship advice at that moment. So they were convicted. (laughs) Jesus will set you up for success by meeting you where you are, even if you're one who's messing a whole lot of stuff up and even messing other people's stuff up. That's this lady, the woman at the well. The next one, be by asking you to do something. Notice he didn't just leave it. He, just didn't, he didn't just say, Lady, you don't even understand how to develop relationships. He didn't do that. He highlighted it much bigger than just saying it. He exposed the details of her sins. She had to actually think about it. And as he did it, she realized oh my goodness, I've heard the one is coming. This one would know all about my personal stuff. <laughs> my, my mother uh, did some uh, mothering things that I think were good for me. And not all things that are good for you are actually reality. I'll tell you what I mean by that. My great-grandmother, one of the most effective tools that my mother used, and it stuck with me for so long. Even after I became a Christian, she told me, What do you think your great-grandmother would think if she knew you were doing this? And she said, you know she can see everything you're doing. I thought, what? Oh, my goodness, I've got to go do something. I mean, I just, you know, I I, I better stop, whatever it is. She can see everything. And the reality is, if heaven is as it is described in the Bible, and it is, where there's no more pain and no more sorrow, my great-grandmother can't see everything I'm doing because she'd be crying. (laughs) I'd be hurting her heart. Oh... My great-grandson, I thought he was going to do better, but it really shouldn't take that. I mean, if I'm dedicated to Jesus, it should bother me that Jesus sees everything I'm doing. That should be bigger than worrying about my great-grandmother. I figured it out later, but I thought it was kind of clever of my mother to put that in my head. You know, it helped me to start understanding Jesus sees everything. He knows the things that I do. He knows what I listen to when I'm in my car. He knows the books and the magazines that I open up. He knows the movies I watch. He knows the vocabulary I use. He knows the things I put in my body. He knows the things I do with the money he gives me. My money's not mine. He gives however I come into contact with any type of valuable anything. It's a blessing from God. And he knows if I take that and squander it on sin... He knows. He knows what I do on the computer. He knows how I talk to people, how I treat people. He knows how I act when I'm not feeling very good, if I'm worn down, if I'm tired. He knows what I post on social media. He knows how I respond in private messages. And he wants me to do something. It's not good enough just that I know he knows. I need to modify what I'm doing. And a lot of times I, I need to think about, you know, I can do better. We all mess up and we all can do better. And Jesus asked her to do something. And it got, the, got her mind going. Oh, he knows everything. And the third thing under four, C, C. By confronting you, Jesus will set you up for success by confronting you. You see, it's not a very loving thing to leave you unconfronted. It's not very nice to leave you wallowing in the mire. It's not very nice to let you continue to distance yourself from Him. Do you not know he feels it when you decide you're going to do one of those things, say one of those things, not do that thing you should be doing? He knows when you push him away. Do you not realize he feels that? And so he's going to confront you. And sometimes it's not in a way that you're going to like. In fact, it doesn't usually feel very good to be confronted. Sometimes it can happen by a spouse who just says, and you're going to think, who do you think you are to be saying that to me? <laughs> Jesus is using them to say that to you because he wants you to succeed, and you're going to fail unless you deal with those demons. You've got you to stop pushing him away. He doesn't like to be pushed away. And sometimes the way we talk to other people and the way we treat other people and sometimes just maybe we're doing fine treating people just fine, but we're... we're judging people and considering them less than us, like the Jews did towards the Samaritans. And sometimes we're not even doing that. Sometimes we actually look upon people, they're better than me. You know, I I, I got that down, Pastor. Don't keep saying that. I'm good. Yeah, well, sometimes Jesus wants you to take that next step. And sometimes you could be sitting in church and listening to a preacher. You can have the radio on and listening to something that motivates you. Sometimes it's in a book. Sometimes you're just outside looking at nature. Sometimes it just comes to mind. You're driving down the road. That's the Spirit of God convicting you. That's not you. And if you really want to worship God, it's beyond what we're doing right here. You live for Him. And you got to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And if you feel like He's trying to speak some truth to you right now, deal with it. And let his spirit move you closer to him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. <sighs> you, you pour so much into us with knowledge, like in our text today. And God, we want to please you in our response to that. Not, not just today and how we think and how we respond to this in your word, but how we live every day. I know sometimes we don't act like we want to be close to you by the things we do and the things we say and things we think. But God, we do want to be close to you. Forgive us when we stiff-arm you and push you away. Forgive us when we are too critical of others. Forgive us when we don't take your confrontation Forgive us when we don't see the things you're trying to do and don't feel the Spirit trying to move us. God, keep, keep coming to where we are. Keep speaking the truth to us and moving us by your Spirit. And may we please you in the end. In Jesus' name, amen.